The traditional image is you sharpen your pencils, you make a cup of coffee, you waste time, and the goal is to write a page a day. This mantra is constantly espoused. It's not about writing, it's about rewriting. I couldn't disagree with that more. First and foremost, I only write when I'm inspired. I hate doing things contractually or people have an assignment because it's when I have the idea that I can lay it down as opposed to pre-contemplating it and I have to be in the mood. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode with Bob Lefsetz. What do I mean when I talk about creativity and consciousness? Well, I'm sharing my experiences of how the self incarnates through emotion. I write a lot more about this in my book, Humanize Your Brand, which is available on Amazon and Audible. And I'm exploring this topic even further in my next book. This podcast isn't only a way for my listeners to grow and evolve in the years to come. It's a window to explore the topics in our next co-creation. Now about this podcast, I first started The Art of Humanity back in 2015. I've always been fascinated by the metaphysical. I had questions about reality, meaning, and existence since as early as I can remember. And I didn't know that anyone else shared these similar, somewhat weird thoughts until I stumbled on the documentary, What the Bleep Do We Know? The gist of this documentary was how emotional and existential obstacles are a part of the individual and group consciousness, which influences the material world. Suddenly, the world of quantum physics and consciousness illuminated my existence. I shifted my core beliefs about myself and how I fit into the world. My identity shifted because I formed a new lens of reality. My reality transformed as a result. I started to explore how core beliefs structure our identity and how reality is really whatever we define as real. But it's not easy to get out of the matrix. We're fed advertisements to make us feel like we're never good enough. We feel like we need to buy the right clothes, drive the coolest car, and live in the biggest home. When we realize that these are all lies meant to keep us distracted from doing the deep inner self-work, we start to wake up. I've been thinking a lot lately about image versus authenticity. Authenticity, it unravels and unearths a certain kind of solitude that doesn't require a reveal. It's a melancholy mood that's liminal, neither here nor there. I think these thoughts and then let them go as I move through the world in a quiet, quiet solitude. The in-between. Without a time or place, there's a calm and a grace. Yet, as I share this from the essence of my being, I'm aware that the sacredness of what I express can easily get lost in the sea of commercialism. The paradox in the practice of embodiment is that there's nothing to sell. Yet, I want to create a world where we're truly embodied beings. This work requires no sign-up form. You simply live the truest expression of you. It's not something to prove with a huge list or influencers or followers. You see, a paradox exists even by saying this out loud. 
it still becomes something to prove instead of my truest self-expression. But all truth really exists in a paradox, just as embodiment exists through emotion. I may be the CEO of a content marketing business, but to me, CEO stands for Creative Emotional Officer. An executive is someone that has the power to put plans, actions, or laws into effect. But all of that executing is meaningless without creativity, soul, and emotion behind your brand. I share more of these thoughts on my website, and you can subscribe to read these ideas in more detail at jessicaannmedia.com, or you can visit my brand new podcast website, artofhumanity.io. Now, this is season four of my podcast, and the biggest obstacle I have is that I started this podcast because I wanted to get out of my comfort zone. It takes time to dissolve the resistance for how you naturally operate. And once I did and got out of my comfort zone, I wanted to go back into hermit mode. I pushed through the awkward growth spurt in season three, publishing on a full moon schedule. Something that naturally aligns with our body's natural biorhythms felt so, so aligned for me. One of the biggest obstacles I'm facing now is the delicate dance between being an experiential learner and being an organized planner. Wyatt Woodsmall has said, knowledge plus experience equals understanding. This ties into what I'm learning right now on the concept of embodied marketing. I've gained knowledge and experience that the hustle mentality no longer works for me. While many marketers strive, hustle, grind, and work themselves to death, Embodied marketing helps you align, integrate, and work yourself into bliss. It celebrates being in your body instead of being in your head, and it celebrates feelings instead of merely thinking. This helps you to create more meaningful conversations around your industry. It adds context. The key is not just doing things because that's how they're done. The key is feedback and learning in the present moment. Whether it's my book or a new podcast episode, Putting ideas out there helps me to gain momentum. So this brings me to where I am today. I'm hitting publish on the first episode of season four on Wednesday, October 24th on the full moon in Taurus. Known as the full hunter's moon, this lunar phase marks the height of autumn before the scarcity of winter sets in. My guest today is Bob Lessetz, and he's someone who aligns with my vision. His integrity stands out in a world full of sellouts. He doesn't do things for the money or fame, but rather if it fits into his value system, which I adore about him, when money and fame dominate most of society today. He narrates our fast-paced culture with impeccability and courage and isn't afraid to speak the truth. Now a little backstory about how I know Bob. I started following his blog back when I was working at XM Radio and it became clear that his influence on culture is of historical importance. Lee Abrams was the chief creative officer of XM at the time. He coined the phrase, AFDI, actually fucking doing it. And he actually fucking does it. Not only does he do it, but he has strong opinions that shape music. Music, in turn, shapes culture. So in a sense, this interview goes behind the lens of what shapes the fabric of our society today. Lefsetz is someone who writes from his heart, and I sat down with him to discuss how he started writing, advice he has for aspiring writers and musicians, and the future of writing, among many other topics. 
Take a listen. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on the iTunes store. Happy full moon. I'm so excited to have with me today a music industry insider and critic, Bob Lessetz. Lessetz is the author of The Lessetz Letter. Famous for being beholden to no one and speaking the truth, Lessetz addresses the issues that are at the core of the music business, downloading, copy protection, pricing, and the music itself. Bob's insights are fueled by his stint as an entertainment business attorney, major domo of Sanctuary Music's American division, and consultancies to major labels. The Left Sets Letter has been publishing for over 25 years, first as hard copy, most recently as an email newsletter, and now in blog form. Bob, I'm so thrilled to have you here on The Good Art of Handling. <laughs> so Bob, I have been a follower of your writing online since my days back at XM Radio. Right, I was good friends with Lee Abrams, who was head of programming there. Yeah, he, he coined the phrase AFDI, actually fucking doing it. You're someone who actually fucking does it. You just show up in a way online that I just adore and I respect. You really write from your heart. How did you start approaching this? Can you we know, go back in time? This could be your whole podcast, <laughs> me telling this story. So it's a matter of how much depth. It's funny, I was just telling this story at dinner the other night. Tell me if I'm going too deep. So when I was in high school in the 60s, I wrote a couple of very successful things for the school newspaper, which were fun. They were kind of parody things. And my friend was the editor of the newspaper. And then when I went to college... You had to take one English course for a semester. And the only time I ever did this, I called the professor and I said, can I do something creative? And he said, yes. And I did something creative. And it was about this book called Felix Kroll, The Confidence Man. And I had a whole title with, uh, or that's the way the joint blows, whatever. It was a crazy thing. Where I went to college in Vermont at Middlebury College, 45% of the people were prep school students. They saw the title and said, you're going to flunk. I got an A in a school where no one got an A. And I went to the pay phone. It's before mobile phones. Most people didn't even have a phone in the room, although ultimately I got one. And I called my mother and I said, I'm going to become a writer. And she laughed. <laughs> so then the next year, I took the creative writing course. When you go to a small college, there's only one teacher. This guy, John Claggett, wrote sea stories pretty unsuccessfully. And I would write, and the nature of these creative writing workshops, so to speak, is that you read and people comment. I would read, it would be like springtime for Hitler. People literally couldn't speak. I finally wrote something that the teacher liked, and he said, but it needed a twist. I said, a twist? Have you heard of the new journalism? This is already 1972. New journalism is already long in the tooth. And I never wrote another thing. Did that just thwart you from the creative process when you got that type of criticism? There's so much involved here. As I say, you know, it's more whether you want to hear tips or you want to hear the story of my life. But, yes, I went to Middlebury College. I could have gone to college in New York. I didn't go to college at Columbia because this guy I knew from a summer program wanted to room with me, and I didn't tell him, I couldn't figure out how to say no. And they also didn't serve food on Sunday, which for some reason was a deal. But the real story is I went to Middlebury because they had their own ski area. And the funny thing is, if I look back at my college experience, the only thing I still do is ski. So maybe it's the right thing. <laughs> and I'm a very passionate skier. It's not something I do casually. And you're a writer still, so... Right. Okay. But that, I didn't get that from uh, Middlebury. So when you go to a small school like that, I mean, today maybe things are more fluid, but 
you know, you go to college, first you're excited, then you burn out, then you endure, and then you graduate. So by the time you realize this isn't necessarily for you, it's too late to change course. So but at some point, Middlebury became about just graduating, getting out of there. So there were two things. I had a fantasy of working for Rolling Stone, and then I also wanted to go skiing subsequent to graduation, which I did. I was a starving freestyle skier for two years in Utah. Then I went to law school, and I never really wanted to practice law. I practiced a little bit, and I was working for a big music management company, managed Iron Maiden and Wasp at the time. The guy, Rod Smallwood, still manages Iron Maiden, and we would hire publicity people. That would be a big thing to get the record label to pay for an outside publicity person. And they would write these bios, and the bios were unreadable. So I would have to rewrite them. Then I lost my job. Then I lived off the money for that from that job and had a couple of jobs in the movie business. Eventually, I was tapped about a year and a half later. And I went to see this job counselor. And there's a famous job hunting book. The person just died who writes it called What Color Is Your Parachute? I bought it but never read it. But it turns out there's a workbook involved with that. Not that you buy it over the counter. But this job counselor had that. And the workbook said you have to write seven essays. And this is 1986. The uh, job counselor said, write seven essays and brag about yourself. And I got back in touch with the fact that I like to write. So then I said, okay, I'm going to try this. And I wrote a few things and sent them to magazines. And when the rejections came back, I said, wait a second. This is like the music business. You have to know those people. I don't know those people in the magazine business. And then about six weeks later, I was eating a hamburger in a building that still exists, but it's now a different business. It's called Flaky Jake's, northwest corner of Pico and Sepulveda. And I was reading Billboard, which goes up and down. It's in a down period now. It was up in between, but back then it was in a down period. And I said, this is terrible. I could do a better job than this. And all of a sudden I freaked myself out. This is 1986. I said, I think there are computers. I mean, I think you could actually do this. I was not computer literate. And um, I went home and woke up my girlfriend. She says, oh, you should do it. I have this idea to do this newsletter. And ultimately, I did decide to do it. I charged up five grand worth of computer equipment on this credit card I'd gotten for being an attorney. And I started the newsletter in 1986. And I switched it online at the turn of the century. Wow, that's quite a story. No, believe me, there's so much more than that. Uh-huh. I'm trying to just hit, as I say, I don't want to burn up two hours of your time. Right, the other right. thing is funny to yeah. me here because people never really tend to ask me about me. I'm always busy asking about other people. So once you put the dime in the jukebox, I tend to go on. Yeah, I love hearing it, especially because you're just so prolific and you have such a sense of what's happening in culture. Well, well two things there. Because people ask me, you know, conventional writer, and you'll read about this all the time, you get the image of... Granted, many people are writing. You know, we live in such a backwards. Can we swear on this podcast? Of course, go right ahead. We live in a fucked up backwards culture where people like to think about the past. So you get a lot of people say, "Oh, oh, I write on a yellow legal pad. It's so much better." Well, are you fucking nuts? I mean, the great <laughs> thing about the computer, I remember when I first wrote those stories for about my computer. You're doing it on a, on a typewriter. It's just terrible. I had my Smith Corona Electric that my father bought for me to go to college. So the the traditional image is. You sharpen your pencils, you make a cup of coffee, you waste time, and the goal is to write a page a day. In addition, this mantra is constantly espoused, it's not about writing, it's about rewriting. I couldn't disagree with that more, okay? First and foremost, I only write when I'm inspired. 
Okay, there's only. There, only. This there, is perfect. Varying levels. Of, I mean, I hate doing things. I'm trying to think of the right way to put it. Contractually, you know, people have an assignment. I'll do a certain amount of those people. But I, I tend to say no because it's when I have the idea that I can lay it down as opposed to pre-contemplating it and I have to be in the mood. In addition... Uh, you don't like being told what to do or how to do it. You have no, your own that, unique well, way. I don't like that either, but I'm talking about something different. Let's say you let's say you, you were sitting here right now and say, you know, Bob, could you write an article about Spotify and the ins and outs of Spotify? I need it September 1st. I need, you know, 1,500 words, okay? I don't like that kind of work because I don't write to length and I don't write that type of stuff where I could wake up tomorrow and there could be a story about Spotify and I could literally run to the computer and write thousands of words with no problem. I mean, I could go deeper into it if you want to, but as I say, what I like is when lightning strikes and then I can lay it down. The other thing I've learned, I've been doing it a long time since 1986, is that if I change it, I fuck it up. Let me be clear. I reread everything I write twice for obvious mistakes, usually punctuation and stuff like that. Very occasionally, there's a factual mistake. I have learned. I was just dealing with this uh, two nights ago, just with little words, you know, one word like both or something like that. You change it, and then you screw it up because it was like, I call it action painting, kind of like Jackson Pollock did. I'm throwing it down, and if I and if I deal with it, I mess it up. Now, the other thing is because I thought a lot about this. Wow, was, can we stop there? You just compared writing to Jackson Pollock painting. Yes, I did. That is brilliant. I love that analogy. Well, you know, action painting was the term. Yeah. Is that, you know, if you get deep, deep, deep into it, yes, Jackson Pollock might touch up things after he started them. But the fact of being inspired and throwing it down yeah. is what I want to do. Yeah. But just because this is important, um, when I was a senior in high school, and I just went to regular public high school in Connecticut, the teacher had been on sabbatical, which I guess you could get after you taught a certain number of years. And this was in AP English, before everybody went AP crazy. And he made us every day write for five minutes at the beginning of class. And if you had nothing to say, you had to repeat the last three words ad infinitum. And I think that's what helped me develop my style of just, you know, throwing it down. Now, I mean, I don't want to make it sound too simple because I've been doing it a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's like I was with the Malcolm Gladwell when he was talking about, we we're talking about 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. And he was saying when he was at the Washington Post before he went to New York, or there was something at the airport in New York that could have gone either way. And he was right on deadline. This is pre-internet. And he said, you know, it happened like minutes before a deadline, and he literally called and dictated the story to the Washington Post. He said that he couldn't do it presently. I bet you he still could. But it's his, his facility was so finely honed that he could do it right then. So I've done so much of this. If if I if someone were to just listen to what I'm saying and just try to start, it would take a while. Not because I, I'm afraid of them being me. It's just that it didn't happen instantaneously. It happened over time, and you're using your experiences to almost put the words, embody the words that you're writing. And and am I correct in saying that? It's almost well, like you're, you know, you're writing I, I, through... My your... main beat is the music business. Yeah. I cover a lot of stuff. I got very into computers, written a lot of tech. Tech is not as exciting as it used to be for the previous 20 years. And I write about my life to a certain degree, and I'm always worried to what degree 
Am I alienating the audience? However, no matter what you write, you're going to alienate part of the audience. And yes, it is about the experience. But a lot of times I'll be sitting, you know, I listen, you know, people, the problem with, we've been doing a podcast where people can't feed back, but I'm still uptight here because there are certain things that are just triggers in my mind. Whenever you say them, people go nuts on you. One is the physical newspaper. I get three physical newspapers a day. Oh, listen to big tech guy. Believe me, I'm checking the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the LA Times apps all day. And you still get a physical paper delivered? I do mm-hmm. because it's a it's a different experience and you get into different stories you, you might miss. Having said that, I only read on a Kindle and I hate the anti-Kindle people. People send me a lot of books. You send me a physical book. Yes. So I'm doing <laughs> both. Okay. Mm-hmm. But my point here is that whenever... You say you do something, naysayers come out. So I'm almost being defensive, you know, to begin with. But my point being, I'll be sitting, eating yogurt or something, reading something in the newspaper, and literally I'll go, I'll have to run to the computer. Now, there are other, the other greatest inspirational place is standing in the shower. And what, I've, and what people don't understand, and it's very difficult, even my girlfriend, is like, if I get the inspiration, I cannot be, cannot be interrupted. I can lose it. Going, sometimes I say, well, I got to take a pee before I start. I'm going to take a pee and I lose it. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm super immersed, and that might happen once a month, I may not lose it. But otherwise, you know, you got to capture lightning in a bottle. I listened to your podcast that you did with Diane Warren, brilliant interview, and you and she talked about distractions right. and how you're almost a hermit on purpose. Right. Can you talk about saying no to events and engagements that, you know, other people who aren't you would love the opportunity, but you have to be extremely motivated to say no to work on your craft and to hone your art. Can you speak a little to that? There's a lot of things. I think, you know, I've never met an extroverted writer. What I mean by that is I've never met someone. I have, listen, I know a zillion people, okay, just by nature of what I do. And you see certain people who they're going to a wedding, these are people in their 50s, friend of mine, going to a wedding seemingly, you know, every month. And if he posts his birthday, he's got a million things. And he is busy interacting with people 24-7. I do not like to interact with people 24-7 because I need time to do my stuff, which is primarily reading, you know. It's, I love the internet. I love being able to go from topic to topic. I get a million magazines. Since my girlfriend bought me a Kindle in 2009, I really got back into reading novels, primarily fiction as opposed to reading nonfiction. And if I'm with people too much, I miss out on that. Having said that, some of the best times in my life when I've been in situations like summer camp where you're constricted and you're integrated that way. So it comes down to what kind of person you are. As far as saying no... I don't say no because I have to do my work. That happens occasionally. This is a business where people are promoting 24-7. So they want you to do something every night. And if you're my friend, I will go. If you're not my friend and I'm doing a favor for you, it reminds me of a story. My my friend Jake Gold, I've had a podcast a couple of times. We were at Canadian Music Week a couple of months ago. And this manager says to Jake, you should come hear my band. And Jake said, well, you know, I'm not coming. Well, well you, sh- you should come. You should come. You're going to go, why would I come? Under the best case scenario, I like the band. It already has a manager. 
You're the manager. You don't need another manager. <laughs> right. So people want you to write. People want you to get ahead. And There's always a motivation behind someone's request. And you're autonomous. Is that what you're uh, trying to I, say? You know, it's very difficult. I'll tell one of my favorite stories. Please. This guy, Peter Grosslight, who died of cancer a couple of years ago, was a bigwig at what is now called WME, previously William Morris, big music agent. Mm-hmm. And he died of a pancreatic cancer. But before that, he had an illness that no one could diagnose. And it's well known, of course, that WME is run by Ari Emanuel. And at the time, his brother Rom was chief of staff for President Obama. And Peter wanted his illness studied by the National Institutes of Health. So he had Ari hook him up. He called Rom. Rom picked up the phone and said, what do you need? If you're someone who deals with things, I don't talk on the phone essentially ever. Okay, mm-hmm. you have to be a very good friend of mine because people call, hey, how you doing? What do you think about the weather? Oh, yeah, you've been watching the Yankees or the Dodgers. Oh, all that show on Netflix. Come on. Then they get to the <laughs> ask, which you don't want to do anyway. It's all small talk. So it's and, easier, even yeah. though it's more difficult, it's easier, you know, in an email, just ask me for what you want. And, exactly. And, you know, if someone said, I forget who was talking, talking about, you know, what's, what's the most precious thing in the world? And it's time. They're not making any more of it. Mm-hmm. So you have to choose what you do with your time. You know, it would be different to the pre-internet era. You could be bored. Now there's endless stimulation. Like mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of a very long book. I want time to read, finish that book as opposed to waste time with someone. What is the book that you're reading? Well, this is interesting. It's Wally Lamb called I Know This Much Is True. And the head of one of the big agencies, I was writing about this book called The North Water, which his agent hit me to, which I recommend. It'll take a little bit of time to get into. It's a wailing story, not like Moby Dick. And it's also a little bit of a genre story, you know, murder, mystery, that type of thing. And I heard from the head of one of the agencies, and he said this was his favorite book. So I wanted to read it so I could converse with him about it. Got it. And so that's an example of doing your research. You're reading because you have an event or a conversation coming up in your future. But that happens rarely. Rarely. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because it takes, you know, it takes too long to read a book. Yeah. I mean, occasionally, you know, some big wig emailed me about a nonfiction book, and I tend not to read nonfiction, but this was a little bit of a self-help book. And I'm reading it because he's a close friend of mine. But generally speaking, the nature of public speaking, the nature of podcasts, et cetera, it's all encouraging. Now, I'm not sure exactly who your audience is, but I'll talk about my audience. My audience tends to be musicians, music people. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them to give up. <laughs> they hate that. They want to hear, you know, what the opportunities, and that's where the money is lying. You know, selling to the wannabe who might even be happy if he never makes it. Okay, but on so, some level, I'm trying to scare people away. They have no conception of how hard to make. I mean, I love when I get the letter. You're talking about compensation in the music business, and they say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! How am I supposed to pay?" my mortgage and pay for my kids to make my car payment. And I'll say, who told you to get that stuff? (laughs) That's how hard it is to make it. Exactly. Yeah. It seems like a lot of the times, you know, people are just going up to work, living for the paycheck, and we're really not meant to wake up, pay bills and die. But at the same time, there are these facts of life that you have to maintain. So how can any listeners who are either writers or musicians, how can people make a living off of this art? And you do it so well, and you massage the words. I mean, and this you... <laughs> is a whole other. Po- I starved. I, have, I can tell you 
really bad stories about running out of money, having less than $20 in my bank account. I mean, you're catching me at my peak now, but I could tell story after story, you know. Did that shape who you are today? Do you appreciate it? In a negative way. In a negative way. I mean, I don't want to boast about that. I wish it didn't happen. It didn't help my writing at all. In anything, it pushed me over the edge. I had to go to the psychiatrist to come back. Really? Oh, yeah. When was this? Early 90s. And how did you get out of that funk? Uh, I went to see the psychiatrist. I mean, at the time, I ran out of money, and I lived on no money for a few years, which really fucks you up. They say if someone's homeless for some very short period of time, I think it's a week, whatever, they, it takes them years to recover. When you're literally worrying about the next paycheck coming in and you don't have enough money, it really fucks you up with money. And you're working so hard. I was working so hard to increase my money. And then you, you, you ultimately, you know, it just doesn't seem to work and it all seems worthless. So, and then you have to put the pieces back together. It's a difficult process. So I'm reading this book now, um, Anti-Fragile, where he talks about this exact situation, not exact situation, but situations where you have to be able to thrive off of change because there's always change happening in the technology and music industry. I'm going to tell you what one psychiatrist only said, saw once because of the transitional situation said, he said, stop reading self-help books. I don't believe, I can tell you a couple of self-help books that are genius Okay, the Feeling Good Handbook, written by a psychiatrist. This is not written by someone who woke up one day. It's all about cognitive therapy. But the problem with self-help, even the best books, and most of them are junk, is they're not particularized to you. I'm a very late-night person. I remember being up late and listening to Dr. Ruth, not Dr. Ruth, Dr. Laura. Dr. Ruth's a nicer person. <laughs> and I went to my psychiatrist, and he goes, and I, you know, I thought what she said resonated. Forget that she's a difficult person. That's not my point. And he said, you're exactly the opposite. Okay? Yeah. So people, there's a famous book, which even I bought. Do what you love and the money will come. That's completely untrue. Completely. Okay? So I think when one goes into the creative arts, one learns through experience. Mm. And if you want to be a drone, maybe there can be some things that are theoretically creative, but you're filling a niche. Okay? But, uh, you know, I was listening to a Malcolm Pod- Gladwell podcast, and I don't agree with all those podcasts, and he's way too self-satisfied, but he talked about these people who say the unpopular thing. If you're an artist, you have to be willing to hang it out there and endure the bows and arrows. And most people don't have the personality for it. So when did you learn this about your own personality, and when did you realize that you were different than how most people move through the world? That's fascinating because my psychiatrist goes on and says how similar I am to everybody else. That my own viewpoint was that I was so different. Really? You go to therapy long enough and you realize what you thought were the defining factors were not. Like I skipped a grade. I skipped fourth grade. I always thought that affected my interpersonal relationships. But going to therapy long enough, no, it had to do with my family situation and my father. I could have... Have been held back a grade, skipped it. it, wouldn't have made any difference. It still would have played out the same way. Doesn't mean you can't improve as an adult, but that's the way it was. So how much of what you do today is influenced by your experiential situations and knowing who you are coupled with like experience? I'd say 100%. And that's how you base your decisions? That's how you... Oh, yeah. You got to be, you know, it's, the irony is I can only do it pretty much in writing. In writing, I'll write anything. And there are things that I might not say in real life. 
I'm not talking about the classic, I'm going to nail you in writing, and then I wouldn't say it to your face. Believe me, if I write it, I would say it to the person's face, okay? But I get in a zone, and I get freer when I'm writing. I'm less self-conscious. So tell me, how often do you feel like you need to write in order to feel like you are you? That's a fascinating question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. Certainly, if I don't write for a week, I'm fucked up. But I say it's really much shorter than that, two or three days. I know when I don't see you pop up in my inbox, I'm always curious. What's going on? (laughs) The landscape has completely changed. Music used to drive the culture. It does not drive the culture today. For 20 years, tech drove the culture. Now politics drives the culture. But politics is something that everyone's got an opinion on. So you have to ask yourself whether you're moving the needle or not. And we also have a very bifurcated uh, community, you know, on the left and the right. So on some level, you have to ask, well, where am I? What am I saying? You know, it's like being a band. On some level, they don't want you to change. Okay, there's a famous Garth Brooks did an album of rock tunes called Matt Gaines uh, in the late 90s. It was a failure. Okay, so. They think they want the same thing again and again. This is Steve Jobs' great thing. People have no idea what they want. Mm-hmm. Really none. Mm-hmm. So if you're pushing the envelope, you could be incredible success or an incredible failure. But it's only fun if you're pushing the envelope. But it's very risky because people think they want what they've always gotten. And that really goes back to creativity. Um, you've written about yeah, creativity. Well, I, I, I'm just listening to what you have to say. I've had my, I, my, my head in my fingers, okay, yeah? You give me a funny look. It's really about challenging preconceptions, surprising us, delivering the unexpected. I took that from one of your... No, that is absolutely true. <laughs> I didn't realize, you know, until you said that I'd written that. Yeah. The other thing is I'm writing with passionate passion. If I'm not passionate about it, I'm not writing about it. Absolutely. So creativity is influential to writers today, and you have to be inspired. You have to be, it has to be coming from your soul. Do you believe in a part of you that is bigger than just you that can tap into this and let it flow through you so that you can educate? Okay, when done right, you don't know where it comes from. All those cliches are correct. What I'm trying to say, you're, you're channeling something. I don't think it's got anything to do with a higher power, God, none of that, okay? But it has somewhat that feeling, like it's coming right through your brain into your fingertips. And when you have that moment, what does that do for you? Did you feel different throughout the rest of your day? Uh, Generally speaking, you have to start with the inspiration. Those moments are based on inspiration. So in terms of writing... You know, you put a gun to my head, I could write all day long, okay? I have no problem. You know, people talk about writer's block. If I need to write, you know, because I'm going to die, whatever, believe me, I'll write. But you can't write an 11 every time. You try to, but you can't. I only don't finish something maybe once or twice a year. And for those people who don't know me, I mean, I'm writing a lot, frequently multiple times a day. So I found that if I don't finish it, then I'll look back and... I'll see it. See, that was good. And I didn't realize. So I finish everything and I send everything because you're not always your best judge. But you never know exactly what will resonate. But when you hit it over the fence, you know. I mean, no problem. And one of the things I love about your letter is that you curate responses from your readers. 
in other articles or in other posts, rather. So how often do you reach out to your friends in the industry to get inside information versus, okay, so you mostly just allow the left says letter to catch information? My my basic thing is analysis as opposed to information. And I've broken a few stories, just, you know, someone had emailed me about something or whatever. But I am not sitting, as I, I don't talk on the phone, I'm not sitting on the phone all day. It's fascinating because I broke news about six months ago. And it's fascinating to see it cover the world in an hour. What was the news that you broke? It had to do with uh, you know, a Me Too story. Yes, okay. I want to talk to you about this as okay. well. Mm-hmm. So you can literally see it populate in a thousand sites within an hour. Okay, They are giving the information. I am giving analysis. In addition, I am reading all day long. And as much as I've read... Most of the writing is terrible. And the best written stuff on a regular basis is The New Yorker. I don't like their style. I don't think they're always right. but And I don't think it should always be proofread to that point. But it's a higher level of writing. So if you talk about the music business, which is not an intellectual business, for getting information, people are writing about the music business, even some erudite people, it's just unfucking readable <laughs> you know, I tell people, it's like when I do live appearances or, you know, first and foremost, it must be entertaining. Content is secondary. It's like it's like if you're writing something, if the writing is not entertain is not hook you, it doesn't matter what it's about. It doesn't matter if it's the best analysis of all time. Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, I'm trying to make, you know, the writing entertaining. And yeah, you do that really well. And another thing you do is you break news about really fascinating subjects that are you're on the pulse of really what's happening in culture and tech and you well, it's mentioned really not that hard to do if you're an introvert it's not hard well, no, I mean, you need time you need if you're time. someone who's going out to the bar, bar or wherever you're going every night right this is what i'm doing all day long and i'm not complaining about that i love doing it mm-hmm. but it's like it drives me crazy if i start thinking okay when am i going to get to read the newspapers when am i going to get to go to my sites what am i going to do you know when am i going to get to you know i want to do those things that's like your water and air <laughs> to get it through. is yeah. it is but the other thing is there's an astounding amount of information i mean we're talking right after uh in Finland, uh, Trump and Putin met. And if you may or may not remember, they wanted to be able, uh, Putin said he would cough up the people we've indicted for interview if we'd cough up certain people. And one of the people he wants us to cough up is this guy, Bill Browder. Well, I read that guy's book, Red Notice. So all of a sudden you're up to speed. You can comment with expertise in the Magnitsky Act. Mm -hmm. So the shit fits together in certain ways. I was out with an economist the other night and I'm reading the Wall Street Journal every day. You know, 90% of it is stuff, 98% of stuff is ne- I'm never going to write about. But it ends up paying dividends. That's not why I do it. It's just funny. So the, I've had a couple of people try to imitate me. They're not willing to do the work. It's about perseverance. But just staying there. Gladwell wrote the book about the 10,000 hours. But there was a book called The Talent Code, which is nowhere near as readable. But it talks about the science there with myelin, et cetera. But it's about 10,000 hours of hard practice. So what I'd say, because I'm a big skier, is you spend 10,000 hours on the bunny slope, you're not going to be a world-class skier. You have to challenge yourself. Same thing with writing. If you're doing the same thing every day, you'll get good at that, but you won't be a world-class writer. So that brings me back to something that you said earlier. You have to challenge yourself, yet you tell the other side of that is you can only write when you're inspired. Right. So there's a paradox there. So There would be a paradox 
except generally speaking, I'm inspired multiple times a day. Mm, that's great. There's, you yeah. know, I, my biggest concern is burning out my audience as opposed to not being inspired. You go through lulls, and you know, every once in a while, I say I, don't, I have nothing to say, and and then all of a sudden, you know, it comes back. It always comes back. So you publish an article to your left sets letter right. almost at least like once or twice or sometimes three times a day. Yes. What is the feedback that you get from new subscribers, old subscribers? What What is the general um, consensus around the frequency that you publish? Do people love it, hate it? Do you I care? I am going to ask a different question. And, if it, and do you care? Of course I care because I'm, I'm uptight about alienating my audience. If I send two things in a day, I lose net subscribers. Always happens. What was the question you thought I was going to ask? What the reaction is. Yes. Okay. The negative reactions always come first. Okay, and I was discussing this with the economist who's got a newsletter just the other day. So the person who thinks you're a big prick and what you wrote is wrong, you'll get those first. Okay. Do you let that get you down? Or do you just delete? Anybody who says that it doesn't affect them is lying. The cliche, I mean, as I say, every day I'm here, I hear that I'm a god and I hear that I'm a shithead, literally. <laughs> and it is true, as everybody says, the bad ones stick with you. I don't respond to anybody I don't know unless you're famous. I've had too many bad experiences. That makes sense. Yeah. 10% of the public, maybe 15% of the public, is literally insane. And you have no idea who that is. And I've had a couple of bad experiences where you respond to someone and something really you know, frightening happens. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. unfortunate. But yeah. I do read the email, though. Yeah. Okay. And do you, you don't let that form an impression for your future work. You kind of just let it. I'd be lying if I said it didn't. Yeah. Of course, it affects me. Yeah. And the people who say that it doesn't, I don't know how they live their lives. I think... You know, okay, I deal with a number of journalists. They are a cabal, and they see themselves as insiders, us versus them. Forgetting the elite who were too caught up in the people that they're writing about or being stars themselves. The high-level opinion columnists or whatever, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, forget those. The average person, this is a profession, this is what I'm doing. I remember writing about an act. You know, don't forget, everybody is always trying to work the refs. So... You write about something they don't like. They'll call. They'll email you, call you. No, let me tell you the really way it is. And there was something. The story was broken by the Wall Street Journal, and I amplified that. And they called me from the label to go on. Then I, I know the guy at the Wall Street Journal said they didn't contact me. And when I told him what they said, he didn't care. Okay. So, unlike journalists, I can't speak to every journalist because I'm not a traditional, you know, print journalist. Uh, I must say it does affect me. In addition. I get a lot of feedback. If you go back to Trump's election, the New York Times and a lot of people missed it. That was astounding to me, but thinking a lot about it is, unless you're on the opinion page, everybody's essentially faceless. So if I would write something, I would hear from the right wing ad infinitum to this day. I had experience, and all of a sudden you they didn't have any of that experience. They're in the New York Times, etc. So I'm subject to a good amount of negative feedback. It's freaky. What is journalism today, then? Okay, if you're writing for the newspaper, it's like I know someone who left the Wall Street Journal recently. They're literally writing to space. You know, the Wall they, Street Journal? Yes. You, you know, they don't want you to turn the page except for certain articles. You're writing, this is how long the article is going to be. Where well, I'm of the belief that the article is interesting and can go on forever. Okay? <laughs> and it's very much about getting the story. I do not write about anything I do not know about. This is one of the things that bothers me today about newspapers and magazines. 
the people, it's like the LA Times just switched somebody to TV reporting. You know, she used to be something completely different. How about finding someone, you know, she's a critic, it's not a perfect thing, but there are people who are living all day in this sphere. So if I'm writing about music or skiing or tech, I'm living it 24-7. This happens to me all the time. Newspapers, radio, they call me up and A, they want me to educate them. B, they have nothing, they don't know anything about the subject. C, they have a preconceived notion. When you tell them it's not true, they blame you. It's just insane. So I don't want to go, I mean, New York Times is the best we have and it's good, but it's flawed. And information is important. But if you're in the game, it's astounding how fucked up it is. And, I mean, it's like, we're going to go to a concert tonight. I may write about that concert. If you took me to a science fair, I would write about my experience at the science fair. A, I know nothing. B, I talked to this person. This one. I'm not going to say, this is what happened at the science fair. Because I know someone lives that experience 24-7 is going to be a real expert. Right. Okay. So I will occasionally say, yeah, I went somewhere I have no experience. Let me tell you what happened. But I don't say I'm an authority. So do you think that journalism has a future? Writing has a future no matter where you put it. I mean, people are writing. You know, it's funny. The web is shifting as we speak to more visual content. But the written word has never been more powerful in my lifetime. By the same token, it's harder and harder to get noticed. And I notice in my own work, if you go back to the last decade... You know, when there are fewer people in the game, it was easier for my message to go viral. And but now there's so many competing messages. I mean, every day we're inundated with it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I get let's see, one, two, three, four, five. I get five emails a day and a couple other that are weekly that have multiple links in them, stories to read. I solve this problem. I don't read any of them. <laughs> it's just too much shit. It's too much. So if somebody yeah. forwards something that I write to somebody, they may not even read it. Not because, It's got nothing to do with me. They're just inundated with stuff all day long. They, they need mm-hmm. a life. So yeah. that you have to hear about something a number of times. And then it's fascinating also. I mean, people have been emailing me for the last two weeks an article. I know the site. I know the person who wrote it. it the information is technically wrong. And one of is either the Financial Times or the New York Times wrote the real story. People believe what this site, which I know this guy's always wrong anyway, but oh, and they're, they're forwarding it. So the amount of misinformation is great. It really bothers you, and I went through a phase. You could be a cop 24-7 talking about this is right. People don't want to hear negativity to that degree, and it chews up all your time to do other stuff. Absolutely, yeah. So... Can we go back a little bit about what you uh, referenced a little while ago about um, the Me Too movement? Can we talk about that? I know we touched upon it earlier. And, um, you know, you wrote in one of your posts that the music industry is a male-dominated construct where there's little upward mobility for women. Do you still think this? And if so, do you think that there's something similar going on in the speaking industry as a whole? I know you go to a lot of events and stuff, so I'd like to just talk about, you Uh, know. Actually, uh, you know, hmm. You know, when you talk, but I tend to go to music events, not exclusively. And a lot of them are, I mean, I don't speak on panels. Generally speaking, I'm more of a keynote speaker. And the panels, they do get women on there. By the same okay. token, I never go to any panels. I don't care if they're male, women, or whatever. It's just, you know, you already know that shit. You get to the point, you're better off going to lunch with somebody else. Oversaturation. <laughs> right. So it's just, you know, it's a way to, you know, fill up the conference uh, schedule. Mm-hmm. So I think in conferences, my experience is a good number of women. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Without going deeper, just answering the question. In terms of people in the in business, I mean, factually, I agree with my statement. Okay. And B, uh, how to change that, that's a different question. I happen to be an attorney. So when I became an attorney in the late 70s, a lot of attorneys, this is you know, real dicey territory, but I certainly encountered, even when I stopped practicing law, women who were attorneys who acted like men. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's solving the problem. Maybe maybe it's about I don't wanna, you know, pigeonhole because they're aggressive, you know, they're then they're this is like this is such a dicey topic, most people don't even want to talk about it. It's like, you know, Apu on the Simpsons. Matt Groening answered the questions in yesterday's New York Times. I'm reading they go, there's gonna be blowback about this, even though the guy was doing it not obliviously. He said, It's a touchy subject. I know there'll be a blowback, but still people just can't read certain stuff. Okay, that's about racism. And you go on, you know, this shit's repeated all over the web today. Same thing with, you know, Me Too. Therefore, people are afraid to say anything as I'm sitting here. It's okay to be a woman and be aggressive. The only point I would say is does one have to sacrifice their identity to make it in a specific world? So the music business is essentially bro behavior. You need no qualifications to go to. If you have a Harvard MBA, you probably don't have much of a leg up in the music business. Okay, Music business is a social business. It's a crook business, a little bit less of a crook business, and it's based on personality. Not that there aren't some brilliant people in the music business. So if you want to go to work for Unilever or Procter & Gamble, there's a much more direct route. Yeah, you get your MBA. In this thing, the culture is to your disadvantage. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things being written. I'm not the first person. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the sports analogies or the male talk, whatever. I'm not endorsing it. So, therefore, it may make it harder for a woman. I don't think mm-hmm. it's an impossibility. You know, traditionally, there's been very few heads of labels that are women. But also, you have to look at it and say, well, the business is changing. There's more of an emphasis on uh, the live business anyway. But generally speaking, no, these companies are not run by women. What do you see as the future of the music industry? Music will always exist and will always speak to people. Did I live through the Renaissance in the 60s, 70s, even the early 80s, and there was one Renaissance in painting, and they painted thereafter, and, you know, they'll still make music? I could predict the future all day long. I you know, have to think of the audience. It's very much like a few good men. People don't want to hear the truth. They really don't want to hear the truth because they become too depressed. The... Uh, <laughs> Best example I use on this is the movie Milk, Gus Van Sant. And uh, so in any event, what's his name, who uh, used to be married to Madonna, plays Harvey Milk. Oh, Sean, Sean Penn. Penn, okay. And every, he's a gay guy running for some office in San Francisco area or maybe in the California government in the movie. And he's cleaning it up, speaking the truth. And he debates the incumbent, who's a right-winger, and after the debate... The two of them are on the steps of the building where the debate happened. And Sean Penn playing Harvey Milk is pretty self-satisfied. Oh, this is great. Okay. And his competitor says, Harvey, you're speaking the truth. You're never going to win. you got to give the people hope. Okay. And he didn't win. I mean, he eventually won an election a few times down. So you have to ask yourself to what degree you want to give the people what they want. There are scores. Scores is way too low. There are literally millions of people in all creative fields who say, I'm doing it my own way, and the audience hasn't caught up with me. 
Many of them don't even enter the arena. Many of them don't like negative feedback. Many of them don't like to deal with the level of commercialization. I do this all the time. I don't respond to people when they send their music to me. There is literally no upside, okay? How can a musician make it today? You you seem to be one of the most authoritative voices okay, in the but, music but, uh, industry. I'm going to give an example. Okay. I say, first of all, it doesn't matter what I say anyway. <laughs> Put it up on YouTube or SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. Tell all your friends to listen to it. If the number doesn't increase by itself, do something else. Okay? Iterating in real time. Because, you know, this one of my favorite things is a quote. I saved it from Newsweek 20 years ago, but then I threw it out by Mitsuka Uchida, who's a piano player who... Uh, it's a Mozart expert. And she said, I tell all my students to practice really hard and be great because there's very few great things in this world. And if you're great, people will find you. And believe me, that is true. I know when I hit an 11 and I know my inbox is going to blow up. And I know I'm going to hear about that for a long time. You just know it. it had nothing to do with having to promote it, whatever. All you got to do is hit send. As I said, I cannot do that every day it's just literally impossible no one can write a hit record every day so does truth make you great there are people who write fantasy and all kinds of other things not based on truth when it comes to the human element when it comes to the human i mean i'm a big you're writing being familiar you're talking being familiar stuff i am big on truth in humanity okay i believe that people resonate with that we could go off mic i could we could talk about certain experiences in your life having nothing to do with this romance whatever and, you know, I'll say, sure, they go, that's exactly right. That's how you bond with people. Say, oh, yeah, I had that experience. It might be a negative experience. Okay. Mm-hmm. But too many people are phony. And this is what's wrong with social media, primarily Instagram. You're bragging how great your life is. Well, it's been well established, especially with YouTube, whatever. I went to see an act at the Roxy. It was a big underplay. This is a household name act. And the act had had a relationship with a supermodel. And the supermodel was standing right next to me for a pretty long time. Granted, she was very tall, like five <laughs> ten or six feet. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't know who she was, she would not turn your head at all. I'm not saying she was unattractive. But when she goes through all the makeup, etc., it turns her into who she is. Mm-hmm. So the people at home feel inadequate, feel like you know, there's something wrong. Then another you know, great thing I've been writing and other people have been talking about, it's your flaws that make you attractive. Even the biggest example is be Jennifer Grey. You know, she fixed her nose. And, you know, she lost her career. Okay. So people at home feel inadequate mm-hmm. when the real story is ev- forgetting mental issues. Where everybody is adequate. You have to find your own audience. Some of these things, my shrink tells me, the cliches are true. And you're not the best looking guy, even though you have a great personality. Your odds are going to be lower unless, you know, you've done something to attract attention. Okay. By the same token... We have all been involved, what I mean by involved, interacting with someone who's just so good looking, we're stunned. And then we interact, we go, I got to run. This is just so boring. You know, I couldn't <laughs> yeah. spend any time with. 100%. Yeah, for sure. So, Bob, truth, journalism, music, technology, you seem to really be on the pulse of everything. And thank you so much for sharing well, your insights. Before we go, before and- yeah. You know your audience. Yes. So tell me what your audience is looking for. And let me see if I can speak to them in a way that I haven't. Yeah, this is exactly what they're interested in. It's truth and, and authenticity you know, in a way that as is... As I say, there are lawyer, other lawyers. There are writers who really base their whole career on being a hermit. That is not me. 
I, th- I need the social interaction, even though we talked about being alone. I like interacting. I like, you know, meeting new people. I'll be honest. It's like my ex-wife said, I don't have tolerance for a lot of people, although I'm learning to. It's like, this is a calling. It is too difficult to do this if this is not the one thing you're dying to do, if not the only thing you can't do. In addition, it is very hard to make it and sustain so I would say, unless you're shooting for the brass ring, give up. I mean, we don't need another person writing fitness tips <laughs> in a magazine. We all do stuff like that to get yeah. started. Yeah. But if you're, but your goal must be, I'm going to be the definitive person on fitness, or I'm going to be the definitive, or I'm going to write in a certain way. It's like we all have people who we admire in creative fields, and you say, well, it's like occasionally I'll read a book, and I'll go, this is really good. It's just not what I do. I mean, I can't do that. I can only do what I do. So to encapsulate that, you're really just telling people to be who you are. Like, it's a huge cliche, but just be yourself. If you want to be someone writing for the newspaper or mag- newspaper, especially, there's a lot of constriction there. I'm not down with the constriction. Agree. Yeah. If you're someone who wants to write a book, I don't get it. I, I get offered to write a book all the time. Why don't you want so, to write a book? It's such an antiquated world. The what if you people, self-publish? You know, I'll get to hold that. Remind okay. me back. Honestly, <laughs> I'll have to have you the, on again, the, Bob. <laughs> the point is, even if you get paid six figures, whatever, I reach more people when I hit send. It's about being in the immediate world. It's just like in the music business. If you release a record, release another one. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I can contact my audience all the time. It's an antiquated. There are too many people obsessed with the antiquated system when the public and the audience has moved on. Now, what was your question? Why would I self-publish? Because nothing sells without promotion. Okay? You know, I've established a uh, beachhead here. Okay? Without getting how I initially started, I sent free copies to, you know, to thousands of people. Okay? So I don't want to spend my life out flogging a book. I'd rather sit home and write. It'll move. It's like people, you know, I'll only go somewhere if you pay me. And they say, oh, oh you know, uh, come to the conference and pay all these dividends. You know, the biggest of conferences, conference may have a thousand people there. Mm-hmm. So I speak to that. Th- I said, I always tell them the same thing. I'm better off sitting at home writing. I reach much more on audience. Anything could happen. Me and you both. I just wrote an article about this, actually, about the speaking circuit. <laughs> so I'm right there with you. Cause I, I mean, at yeah. first you're thrilled. I mean, yeah. but at this point, you know, because... Generally speaking, you put me in the front of the plane and you pay me, I'll go anywhere. But there used to be a time you put me in the front of the plane and it's somewhere I haven't been, I will go. Mm-hmm. That's not the case anymore. So then what is next for you? Is, do you see the future of Bob Left Sets uh, doing it's exactly what It's always about reaching a bigger audience. If nothing else, there's a song by Jim Carroll on his first album, the one with, uh, called Catholic Boy. It's the famous song, People Who Died at This Point. That's an old record, almost 40 years old. And he goes, I'm just a constant warning to take the other direction. So I see myself as a correction factor to the bullshit. And so if I can reach more people with that message and to have people know, no, you're alienated. There's millions of you. Like I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, okay? I felt like an outsider. I come to L.A., I meet people just like me. They went to UCLA. I mean, they're just like me. It's just like, okay, I was in the wrong place. You know, go where the weather suits your clothes. Mm -hmm. So... Don't try to fit in, but if you're so busy, you know, keeping your rough edges, you know, things may never happen. It's a balance. It's it's hard to figure out how to navigate the world. This is what you learn in psychotherapy. I mean, I'll give away one of my uh, big things. We worked this analogy 
at the psychiatrist about golf. People may or may not be aware of the fact, but there's 14 clubs in a golf bag under the rules. Not that I've played golf in a long time. I used to. I gave, got a hole in one and gave up, literally. <laughs> so, But there's more to that story. But you get to choose what club you want to use. So someone pisses you off. Sometimes you want to use the driver and say, I don't give a fuck if this person never talks to me. I don't care if they tell everybody I'm a jerk. I'm going to get out and whack them. The other times you go, I don't like what they said, but I want to be a little more gentle because it'll work out for me. It's what works out for you. And then navigating that is difficult. It's something I've learned. So too many people are not evaluating their situations to their detriment. But just to go back to my earlier point, yes, when done right, I'm channeling straight from my subconscious right to the uh, computer screen. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me, Bob. Where can listeners find you online? Go to leftsets.com. You're not going to know how to spell that, but if you've got this podcast, you know, it'll have my name. But it's I'll put it L- in the show notes. L, E like Edward, F like Sam, S like Sam, word E like Edward, T, T like Tom, Z like Zebra, like my father used to say. Thank you so much for joining me, Bob. Okay. That wraps up this week's episode of the Art of Humanity podcast. I hope you liked our conversation. If you do, please subscribe, rate, and review it. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter if you'd like. I'm at It's Jessica Ann. That's I-T-S-J-E-S-S-I-C-A-N-N. Also, please check out earlier episodes. I'm getting lots of great feedback on the last few with Mitch Joel, Satyan Raja, and Daniela Port. You can hear them all on iTunes, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think of this conversation and the podcast in general. You can email me at hello at jessicaannmedia.com. <laughs>